Today's passage is Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to, uh, we are going to read through chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. This actually marks the end of our guide. If you've been following along with us, it's been a fun, fun journey. And you might be thinking, oh, the pages have run out. Do we not like the fourth chapter? That's not true. For the fourth chapter, we're actually going to be going through that during Advent, which starts next Sunday. After Thanksgiving is the beginning of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. And, and I, I'm excited about that. It might be a strange passage for us to think about with Philippians 4. It's not about Jesus being born or something like that. But I think it really awakens in us the reality of the reconciliation that that Christ brings in relationships, and Sarah is actually going to preach next week on that. And then it also shifts how we look to glorious and wonderful things in that chapter, and, and Evie will preach on that. We'll also have a Christmas pageant that will be coming in, and then we're going to finish off by talking about how the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, actually resolves, does something with our anxiety. And so we're actually trying to think about some mental health things as we get to the end of the year during this Advent season and how the birth of Jesus is actually a lasting hope for us and all of those things. And, and yeah, I'll preach the last one, so less whoop. Anyway, yeah, there we go. Thank you. So this is a passage, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 17. And it says this, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven." And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. This is God's word. While the kids are out, I want to talk about Nazi Germany, World War II. (laughs) During World War II, France became occupied by the Nazis. The Paris got to experience what many cities in all of Europe got to experience of, of Nazi totalitarian regime rolling in with their tanks into the cities that they loved. Generals of the Nazi army took over palaces, armies took over people's homes, French art became German art, and they really, through that period, tried to beat the French into submission. There was no more France. There was just Nazi France. Welcome to the Third Reich, essentially. And so the French were required to get in the line. They had to give up their rights and join in that empire, become part of the war machine, join that thing of the Nazi, you know, machine that sort of rolled through all of Europe. Some people decided, oh, I'll just go about my business in this new state of affairs, Hitler's France. Except there were some people who never agreed to that. 
They refused to relinquish their citizenship to France. It was who they were. It was in them. They were French. Borders and wars and tanks could not take away who they were and what they belonged to. They formed the resistance. They made everything they could difficult for the, for the Nazi empire. They spied on their occupiers. They broke trains. They tore down bridges. They spoiled food. They cut telephone wires. All of these things, which essentially, it's, it's often overlooked because we're Americans and Spielberg hasn't made a movie about this yet. But really, what they did set the groundwork for the whole success of the, the American allied forces redeeming France than the rest of the, the continent of Europe. They were that impactful. They were subversive. Why were they subversive? Because they were loyal to their kingdom. They didn't forget who they were. They were French. And we, if you've ever had any French friends, you know, you can't take that out of them. The French are the French forever. And they knew that. And so there's always this question with World War II stuff, who would you, you know, align your life with? What would you do during World War II? What would you have done? Would you have just kind of gotten in line and enjoyed German chocolate instead of French chocolate? Would you have gone to the Kaiser roll instead of the baguette? Like, what would you have done? In this letter, Paul describes this kind of reality for us too. All who take up the and are ushered into the kingdom of God and, and made citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we all, Paul is describing this dual reality of two kingdoms operating within us. He describes there's a kingdom who's, who's against the cross of Christ. They're just completely against it. And then there's the kingdom of heaven. For Paul's day, when he was writing this, the Philippians lived in the, the empire of Rome. And then there was also the kingdom of God. For us today, we live in two kingdoms, or at least two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the American dream, and then there's also the kingdom of God. Which will you live in? And Paul's also making a case here because he's telling them, you need to follow my example and the other examples of people that are giving themselves to the kingdom of God because everybody is following something. Everybody has a king. Everybody is following a kingdom. So which one are you going to do? So this morning, I want us to evaluate these two kingdoms and look, what, look at what it's like to live in those kingdoms. And then you'll be challenged, hopefully, to take up not just citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, but actually a life lived in the center of that kingdom. So there's these two kingdoms. The first is the kingdom of this earth or the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul describes it this way. It says that theirs is a destiny of destruction. So the kingdom of earth, one thing we know about it, all of these kingdoms, its destiny is destruction. Essentially, this kingdom is bent towards the destroying of things and places and ourselves. It's a kingdom that devours people. It devours land. And eventually, those kingdoms devour themselves. Kind of this cannibalistic reality. The Roman Empire, wherever it went, it leveled whatever was before. Like it just destroyed cultures. It built its own culture and its place. I mean, it was radical, the submission that they required. And all of it was to the glory and to the aim of Rome. 
Even the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that we look to as like these really great things, it's, they exist as manuscripts because people went and they hid them out in the desert and caves. Why? Because the Roman Empire is bent on destro- destroying anything that isn't it. Then there's also the American dream. James Adams, great philosopher, 1931, kind of the champion of the American dream. He says this about it. He says, the American dream is not moral or personal. So sometimes we think of the American dream as our house with the little fence, or the American dream is about being good people. It's not that. He says the American dream is financial. That's what the American dream is. You need to sell yourself to it. You need to give all you have to keep it, whatever cost, grow financially. Wendell Berry, the the poet, really great poet and writer and author, describes how the kingdom of earth destroys itself in this poem entitled Good Friday. So we're way off calendar-wise, but he's describing what it means to be a kingdom whose destiny is destruction. He says this, it is the destruction of the world, these kingdoms, in our lives that drives drives us half insane and more than half. It destroys that which we were given in trust. How will we bear it? It is our bodies that we give to be broken, our bodies existing before and after us in clod and cloud, worm and tree that we, driving or driven, despise in our greed to live or haste to die, to have lost wantonly the ancient forests, the vast grasslands, in our madness, the presence in our very bodies of our grief. What this is all describing is what Paul is saying The kingdoms of this earth, their destiny is destruction. There's another way to understand this phrase, destiny of destruction, that I think is equally valid. So sometimes I read the commentaries and then it's like, ah, they're both true. So I'm just going to give you both of them. Two ways to think about it. I think maybe double meaning from Paul. The other way to understand it is that the kingdoms of this world, their destiny is failure and they will fall. And they are not eternal, they will disappear. Their destiny, the trajectory of every kingdom on this earth is to not exist one day. At this moment in the history when Paul wrote this, Rome controlled the Western world. It controlled the Middle Eastern world, the North African world. It was unprecedented. Uh, their, Their technique of colonization and of warfare was irreversible. Rome, it seemed, was just inevitable. It was that kind of force almost appearing eternal. Even in their own poetry, they describe the empire of Rome as this beacon, this light that would last forever. Except it went away. Just like the Greek empire, just like the Persian empire, just like the Babylonian empire, just like the Egyptian empire, just like the Third Reich, just like the British empire, the Portuguese Empire, the Russian Empire, the Ming Dynasty, on and on and on, you know, don't you see? Their destruction, or their destiny, is always destruction. Uh, The American Empire, the American dream, is not eternal. I'm not speaking as some sort of prophet or an alarmist or trying to get you to, like, feel some sort of way. I'm simply stating a historical, biblical fact that's reliable, that you can look through through the cycles of all history, one day, America will not exist. The dream will be over. 
How does that feel? It's easy to look at the empire of Rome and be like, yeah, it doesn't exist anymore, but our empire will last forever. How does it feel? I want you to observe within yourself as I describe that, that the, the, the America will one day not exist. Does that fill you with dread, anxiety, fear? Because the thing is, your response to that inside reveals something about where your kingdom allegiances are. And I just want to say, just so you know, its destiny is destruction. He also says that their God is their stomach. Pretty harmful for me. I like my stomach. And he's saying that the God is, their God is their stomach. That the kingdoms of this earth worships its hunger, its thirst. You are your hunger. You are what you thirst after. Your desire for more is what you worship. And the problem with the stomach is it always needs more. A stomach is never satisfied. This Thursday, you will sit down for a meal, lunch or dinner. It'll be Thanksgiving, if you didn't know. Thanksgiving this Thursday. And you will eat an absurd amount of food. And you will have a moment in which you think, I don't know if I can eat another slice of pie. I think my whole body will burst if I do. And then you will eat that other piece of pie. And then you'll drink some coffee. And this is what's, it will not fail. Every single one of you will be hungry again in eight hours or less. You will, you will be filled to the brim, and yet still you will be hungry again and again. And that is how the stomach works. The stomach, operating correctly, is never satisfied. Never, ever. It always demands more Again and again, it always has to be fed. And Paul is saying that the kingdoms of this earth has its stomach as its God. Meaning, the, the thing that we worship is our desire and we have to keep sacrificing and fill it. And it's sacrifice and the thing that fills it is you. And it's your life. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, first billionaire. What a title. And this was a long time ago. I mean, this is back when money was really valuable. Not like today. Anybody can be a billionaire. Started a tech company, sell it, bada bing, bada boom. Right? This was back when it was hard. And he was asked once, he was the richest person on earth, and he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough for you? And he said, very famously, just a little bit more. How much more? He had more than anybody else in the entire world. How much, how much money is enough for you? The journalist asked. And he said, just a little bit more. And that will always be true for him. It was for the rest of his life. He just wanted to make a little bit more, a little bit more. Why? Because the kingdoms of this earth, their God is their stomach and it has to be fed. It must be fed. Who feeds it? You feed it. You have to sell yourself to it. You have to give all you have to keep it. It's exhausting. And one day, you will not be able to fill that insatiable desire, and your soul will starve. This is a pleasant sermon. It's good that the kids are out for right now. 
So then that's, that's the kingdom. It's God is its stomach. Its destiny is destruction. How do you live in this kingdom? How are you supposed to operate in the kingdom of this earth? He says that, it's, that you have to glory in your shame. You have to see and celebrate and, and exalt the shame. Meaning that you have to celebrate what is broken and forget about what is whole. Just say, I'm a mess. That's the end. I, I don't have it all together. You have to glory in things that are broken. You have to give glory to war. You have to give glory to injustice and build monuments to it. You have to glory in the destruction of other people, dance on their graves and celebrate the thing that you beat. Or maybe it's not a other country or empire or something like that. You just get to, you have to celebrate the defeat of other people your competitors in the marketplace, all of those things. Their glory is in their own internal mess. Here I am, that's it. It's the definition of settling. Yes, he's a terrible person, but he's our guy. That's glorying, you know? Yeah, my boss is kind of a jerk, but he's our CEO, I like him. And this is every earthly kingdom. Right now, you might be thinking of those other people, but yours is the good one. This is every earthly kingdom. Yours is no different. Eventually, it has to glory and shame because it doesn't have the power to make anything whole. All it can do is destroy. The other thing that you have to do besides glory or shame is you have to keep your mind on earthly things. Your head in the dirt day by day, hour by hour, focused on playing with mud. That's the image, to like have your face and head in the dirt. It's not the image of cultivating soil. It's not the image of building something great. It's the image of like an ant that season by season just comes into your house and takes a few crumbs and goes away and then disappears the next season. Your whole focus has to be below. There's nothing transcendent. There's nothing large, only dollars and cents, only matter and material, only flesh and blood. So that's how, that's the first kingdom. I sold it really well. It's the, the art of, you know, being the person that gets to talk. I get, to, I get to sell you on what's broken. Now the next kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. This is what he says about it. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's the first thing that he says about it. Meaning, this is the kicker, this is the whole deal. You belong as a citizen of heaven. It's eternal, it's secure, it's unwavering. That's who you are. There's no test to take. There's no financial disclosures to reveal. There's no taxes to pay. You are just a member of the kingdom of heaven. So that's like right off the bat, you just become a citizen. And then he says that our destiny is our savior. He says in verse 20, we eagerly await a savior. From there, from our citizenship, we eagerly await a savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever he's talking about like the other kingdom, its destiny is destruction. Our destiny is salvation. And this is a big reversal. 
and the kingdoms of this earth, the earth has to be destroyed, you have to be destroyed, your enemies have to be destroyed. In the kingdom of heaven, our savior is destroyed for us. That's the whole message. That's the whole deal. From the ancient world until now, Christ has placed himself on the trajectory of saving you. Like, where are you headed? Where, what, what is gonna happen in your life? I will tell you right now. What is gonna happen in your life is that Christ who died thousands of years ago will redeem and restore and raise your life abundantly. That's, what, that's your destiny. There is no other destiny for you. You might move different places, have different jobs, have good money, have bad money, all of that. But your destiny is salvation. The kingdoms of this earth use citizens to destroy. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus our king is destroyed to save the world and to make you his citizen. This is a complete jailbreak situation. He's barreling into history, breaking us free from the tyranny of our stomachs, of our insatiable desires. He comes in and it's like the guy who, who goes into the, the depths of everything and breaks everybody free. Um, it's like the, the four feathers. Uh, is that four feathers, three feathers, two feathers? Heath Ledger's, I should have looked this up more. Heath Ledger, the movie, it's really great. He's a coward in the beginning and he gets these, these flowers from his, feathers from his friends saying, hey, you, you let us down while his friends go into battle. One of his friends goes into jail. He's captured by the enemy. He's taken into the depths of prison. And what Heath Ledger's character does is he sells himself into the dungeon. It's a great movie. You should all watch it this afternoon. And he sells himself into it, becoming with his close, close friend like a partner in their suffering. Why? So that he can save his friend. It is a jailbreak. And in the end, they like let all the things open and people run wild. That is what Christ has done. He has come into the dungeon itself to set us all free. Also, this kingdom is a kingdom where God brings all things underneath his control. It says, Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control... God brings all of heaven and on earth under his care. The kingdoms of this world try to be God, try to control things, try to secure things, try to, through their patterns of glory, become eternal, to have that kind of power. Jesus surrenders all power and then uses the power of the resurrection to bring all things back underneath his care his protection. He makes the world new. And this is actually, it's, it's a jailbreak situation, but actually he transforms the prison and the dungeon into paradise, relocating you from somewhere far away in a dungeon to suddenly now you're in paradise. This is what happened in Australia. They, they discovered Australia, the British Empire, and they said, this is where we should put all the criminals. It's really far away. They put them on ships. They sailed all the way there. They landed there in the Sydney Harbor. It's beautiful. So joke's on them. It's incredible. I mean, sure, there's big spiders and crocodiles, but it is a magical place. I mean, the colors of the, the, 
the birds and the trees and the plants. It's like they were given paradise, these, these criminals. That is what it is like to take up your place as a citizen of heaven because Christ doesn't just save you out of the dungeon. He brings all things under his care and he renews it and restores it and it's right and it's good, it's flourishing. That's a wonderful kingdom. He also says, there's a little bit more. What does he do with bringing things under his control? He transforms our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our glory isn't our shame. Our glory is his transformation of us. Our decaying bodies are raised, just like his body was raised. His body that experienced all of the torture, all of the trauma, all of the agony of crucifixion was raised to like this other kind of body that is whole and vibrant and good. Our broken emotions, our broken bodies, our broken psyche, all made hope. This is the the treasure of resurrection. It doesn't just change our trajectory to, oh, we were saved. Like, that's great. Destiny towards salvation. Hallelujah, right? Not only is it a transformation of a world, like, isn't that wonderful? But it's a transformation of your entire self. As Paul describes over and over again in this letter, he wants to participate in the resurrection of Christ. And it creates a whole new humanity. There's a landmark book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's by a research psychologist, Basil van der Kolk. Uh, He was on a team at MIT, and he was a psychologist and a counselor, and and they were doing therapy on people coming out of the Korean War, veterans. And what they began to understand with using this new technology of MRI along with the counseling is they were the first people to kind of diagnose and understand how trauma actually worked. So even that diagnosis that's an actual real thing of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It's not when the latte isn't correct and you're like, I got so much PTSD. It's like, uh, it's from when you go through trauma, emotional, psychological, physical. And one of the things that he began to understand, and this is the big idea of the whole book, it's really thick. I I don't actually recommend reading it, but there's some great drawings. (laughs) Do you wonder, did you read it? It is a good book. And I'm not saying it's, I just, if all of the books that you were going to read, you know, it's probably a little ditz for you. Unless, yeah, maybe I take it back, Nate. Everybody should read the book. This is essentially the big idea. The big idea is that the effects of the broken world and broken relationships, trauma, both emotional and physical, embedded, not just in your psyche, but in your bodies. That's the phrase, the body keeps the score. All the trauma, all the agony, all the emotions are not just placed some mythical spiritual place, but it's in your nervous system, it's in your muscles, it's in your responses. The body holds all of the trauma. We carry it, as he like goes on to describe, even in your bones, in your digestive system, all of you. The brokenness of the world, the trauma is in you. Radical idea backed up by science. So when the Bible says we await the coming of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies to glory, 
It is describing a raised body that is free from all of the effects of sin. There will be a time where your body does not keep the score of all the sin that you've received and that you have done. You will be raised to a glorious body free from all of that. And it will change the way that you feel. It'll change the way that you carry yourself. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It's where our shame is turned to glory, where our brokenness is made whole. Our king has come. He's changed the story. Our king has brought all things underneath his rule. He's, his ruling is a ruling of peace. I just want to give you a little preview to the coming season. This is something that you will sing soon. When you're, you might be imagining a cute little baby or something like that, which a lot of you have. But this is what we sing and we declare during Advent season. This is from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But it's talking about the reality that Paul's saying here. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies with the angelic hosts. Paul's saying this is the exact same thing. This is our kingdom. This is our king. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Like This is our king and our kingdom. So how are you supposed to live in the kingdom of heaven? Paul describes in the beginning, you're supposed to follow the example of other people. You're supposed to imitate Christ and all that he has done, seeking the, first, seeking the kingdom of God. It's through, you know, subversive act- actions, just like the French resistance, where you're going you're gonna to resist and you're going to be subversive by embracing grace. Radical. The kingdoms of this world are trying to, how do you want to sabotage the kingdoms of this earth? Grace. Through the work of loving over hatred, of, of being for peace over fighting, of being for rest instead of burnout, in seeking hospitality, making space for other people instead of control. It's for generosity instead of consumption. These are all the tools of the double agent of the Christian, of the citizen of heaven who is living in this world. So that's one. Follow the people who are seeking first the kingdom of God. And then the other, which I think is surprising, especially with the language being there's a kingdom of earth, kingdom of heaven, they're enemies with one another. I don't know if any of you caught it when I read it, but it's this. He says in verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is definitely where the Nazi thing breaks down. Paul is saying, we grieve. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in this earth? Paul says, I cry. I have tears. We tell this story of the different kingdoms with intense empathy, with compassion, with love. 
for every friend that we just long that they would be free from the cycles of the kingdoms of this world, we grieve that they've said no to it. This isn't a culture war where people get to dance on a broken kingdom, where we build, put a bunch of tanks and try to siege a place, or where we go and do bombs towards other people. Like, it is not that. It's not this thing where when enough elections, then we can dance on those crazy other people that we dislike, whoever they are. It's amazing how everybody's crazy, except for you. No, Paul is describing, even for every family member, we cry with tears, we say, we want you to be saved from the self-destruction of the kingdoms of this earth. It's with heavy hearts that you don't engage in an argument with your uncle, but instead you say, your kingdom will destroy you from the inside out. So that's how you live in the kingdom. It's, it's grief and following an example, a subversive example. And so the question for you is, in which kingdom will you take up residency? So you can, be a, you can have a citizenship in heaven. It's yours. You have it. It will not go away. But you actually have a visa to the kingdom of this earth. Like you have a, you can go check into it. You can go subscribe to it. You can put yourself into that kingdom. Even though you have the citizenship of heaven, you can take up residency in the kingdom of this earth. And so the question is, where will you place all of your confidence and trust and hope? Which one will you live out? Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and that I long for, you're my joy and my crown. He says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. There comes a point, and Paul loves this phrase. Through all of his letters, he has this phrase, stand firm. It's funny. He has sit, he has walk, and he has stand over and over. Watchman Nee wrote a great book titled that, Sit, Walk, Stand. And it is about what Paul is saying is there's, you walk with Christ, you sit in his glory, but you also stand firm. Not like this resistance to a culture, but you stand firm in where you belong. Saying, I'm not going to go submit myself to the kings and the kingdoms of this earth. I'm going to stand firm in the hope that has rescued me. Stand firm in the hope that has transformed me, bringing everything underneath his control. Will you stand firm in that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that in it, all shame gets destroyed. We thank you for the power of your kingdom to bring everything back into order. I pray for us to believe in it, to long for it. Help us resist the allure of the kingdoms of this earth and teach us how to be subversive in the workplaces, in the schools, in the clubs, uh, in the society that we live in because we love it.
We weep. We have empathy. We have compassion. Help us to live and see people come out of the dungeons of destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are doing that we cannot see. Amen.